Hello and welcome. Is your business your mission and your mission your business? If yes, you found your tribe. Whether you feel like it or not, you are avant-garde, going your own way, making your own path, doing it like no one has done before. And the answers to the challenges you're facing aren't in a book. My friend, you are not alone. This is the Avant-Garde Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Bailey, a mission-minded serial entrepreneur and traveler. My purpose on this earth is to use my authenticity and passion to equip and empower social entrepreneurs to live in their highest calling, feeling freedom, fulfillment, and security, and inspiring others to do the same. Join me for stories, tips, and tricks for taking avant-garde inspired action in your business so that you feel encouraged, equipped, empowered, and unstoppable. I believe it doesn't have to be hard to be right. Welcome to episode 43 of Avant Garde Entrepreneur. I am so glad you're here today with me, my friend. This is the second episode in a two-part series on investment readiness. Now, before I go any farther, I have a disclaimer. This episode is not for investors, and it is not about the process of investing. Instead, it is for avant-garde entrepreneurs who want to up-level their impact, missional, faith-driven, and social business. The impetus for this topic was episode 40 with Dr. Jim King, a professor for over 30 years in social entrepreneurship. Dr. King shared that the number one trend in social enterprise is impact business as investment opportunities. Yes, there are people out there who believe in you more than you can possibly imagine. And I thought, well, what better way for you to begin to believe that than to hear directly from the people who are putting their money where their mouth is and investing in you? So this series is designed specifically to expand your minds about what's possible in terms of larger scale financial partnerships and increase your understanding about what you can do now to begin positioning your enterprise as a candidate for investment. In episode 42, the first of this series, we got to learn from Don Simmons, someone who's been a part of impact investing for decades. He's the author of The Steward Investor and the founder of Steward Advisors Group. Today, I am thrilled to introduce you to Jeff Schaefer, the CEO and co-founder of Common Good Capital. With Jeff, we want to get give you a more, even more encouragement about the depth of belief that people have in you and also knowledge about what you can do to get to the next level. Jeff is also the host of a podcast called The New Lens. His podcast is literally a library of interviews of the who's who of impact investing. And there's even an episode with Morgan Simon, the author of Real Impact, which Dr. King referred to as one of the best business books or the best books regarding the future of impact businesses. So if you want to know what people are saying about you and how much they believe in you, check out Jeff's podcast, A New Lens. It is linked in the show notes. Jeff is someone I knew from my other life, but did not know personally until last year. And the circular nature of life is baffling sometimes. I found someone doing some of the most needed and incredible work right here, just a two hours drive away from my home. 
I'm really excited for you to learn from Jeff, not only about investment readiness, but also as a business leader. He's been through some heavy stuff. He's quick-witted and direct, but also humble and kind. As you Mm -hmm. hear him talk or watch him on YouTube, I think you're going to notice many qualities in Jeff that you either see or want to see in yourself. Jeff, thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, it is uh, an honor to be here with you today, and thank you for your kind words. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. Me too. Well, let's get into it. So, Jeff, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? Did you go to university? And what was your little bit about your career before Common Good Capital? Sure. Uh, I'm going to go all the way back. I was born in California. I really was raised, however, in the state of Oregon and then moved to Chicago, Illinois when I was a junior in high school, then attended Wheaton College, which ironically is where I sit today. Um, We'll see if we get into that. But this picture behind me, there's probably two things to note from Wheaton. One, it's where God placed a seat in my heart for men and women behind bars. So I'm actually sitting in an office called the Correctional Ministry Institute. That happened when I was a freshman, when that was when God planted that in my heart. And then ultimately from here uh, in university, I was a psych major, a biblical studies major, and lo and behold, I end up in traditional finance. And part of that's because here at Wheaton, there's there are a number of financial institutions that are here today, but also they, where they were here 30 years ago. And through some relationships, I, I started in the financial services industry, ended up having about a 20-year career as an executive in what's called the alternative investment space. So mm-hmm. basically anything other than stocks and bonds. Mm-hmm. And we would put together huge portfolios of investments, real estate, private credit, if that's familiar to you all, essentially investing in loans that are of of non-public companies. And we would do that through financial advisors all across the United States. I don't know if we'll get into this, uh, so I'll just preface it real fast. When I was 40, 10 years ago, God radically shifted my career. The irony is, is when I say radically shifted, on paper, it looks very similar to what I did for the first 20 years, but the motive and the rationale behind it is completely different. And so that's what I'm doing today. I started a company actually with my younger brother and it's called Common Good Capital. And that essentially we created it because we saw that the ever increasing demand for to help connect capital with investment opportunities that not only have the ability to make money, but also can do good, whether that's spiritual, whether it's environmental, whether it's all different kinds, however you want to classify it. Essentially, we knew the world is going to start asking, what does it mean to be a steward of your investment capital? Not simply just asking that on the charitable side. And uh, I'm happy to say 10 years into this, um, the world is definitely moving in that direction. So for those of you who are on this or listening today, it's we're still early. But it should be very encouraging that um, people are looking to use their capital and align it with missions and values and people that are making a difference in the world. That is so encouraging. And isn't it fun to be on the early end? It's always tough being the early adopter, especially. (laughs) It's not easy to have conversations with your friends because they don't understand. 
<laughs> but it's that 10 years when they look back and they say, now I see what you're doing. Now I get it. Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to add one comment there because yeah. especially for those of you in the social entrepreneurship world, when I when I stepped down from being the president of this large organization to go pursue impact investing, again, this was 10 years ago, I remember I reported directly to the CEO. I was the president. And I remember talking to the CEO and, and telling him, this is what I'm going to go do. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to use names and whatnot. Um, to all transparency, he's a great guy and is a man of faith. But he probably doesn't remember. When I told him I was going to do impact investing, he looked at me and he's like, Jeff, I really question your theology. And I didn't, at the time, I wasn't going to get into it. It didn't really matter. And uh, so I, I say that because, you know, that's some of the obstacles that that I'm sure you all will face, I face. Now, I will tell you that individual today has actually come around and has done some impact investing himself. So it is amazing how this shift is is happening. So, and if you think you're crazy, I felt I was crazy 10 years ago. And there are mm-hmm. still moments when I think I'm crazy as well. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about your radical shift? I, th- I think everybody is probably wondering about that. Can you talk a little bit more about the segue? Yeah, I'm happy to. So let me just paint a picture a little bit. And, I, and I, I'm going to paint the picture not to bolster myself, but, I, but you need to know where I was at. So I was 40 at the time. I was at this this large alternative investment company. I had about 100 and this dependent on the year, but call it 125 to 150 people who I was responsible for, for leading. We would raise about a billion to a billion and a half a year. So that's think about it. It's a it's lot a of money, money that we would raise wow. from investors all across the United States that would go into these alternative investments. And um, I had a back surgery when I was 40. So all that stuff was happening at work. So you know, from, from a worldly perspective, I was making great money. I had great influence. And when I was 40, I, I ended up having a back surgery. And on one hand, it was, a, it was a back surgery. I mean, everybody, I'm not everybody, but people have back surgeries and they move on and life goes on. But I remember writing in my journal, there was probably about 12 to 14 things that were hitting me all at once, all the way from we thought when my wife had cancer to um, my parents of 47 years were basically, and they, unfortunately they did, were getting divorced. Um, things at work were really challenging. And then, I'll, lo and behold, I go into just massive pain. And I've been struggling with back pain for a while, but nothing to the extent of this. I don't sleep for about, well, I don't have good sleep for probably about two months. So everything starts to deteriorate. Long story short, I have a back surgery. And the metaphor that I would give you is, is that I was on this treadmill and really for the first 40 years of my life. And God graciously, although it did not feel graciously at the time, <laughs> that back surgery was him metaphorically knocking me off that treadmill. And when I woke up after back surgery, and I, and I mean literally when I woke up after back surgery, it's like for the first time I was still. Mm. And actually it was very uncomfortable and it was not, I don't I won't even describe how but it was it was not a comfortable state to be in. But out of that what I what God revealed to me was that I had been addicted to adrenaline, that work was my mistress, that 
I was a performance junkie, so to speak. And, and here's what's amazing. In fact, where I sit today and I, and I see the, the bars behind me, you know, a lot of addictions in the world are illegal. But workaholism and all that you want to wrap around that, you get rewarded. In mm-hmm. fact, mm-hmm. in fact, I got paid for that. And uh, but what I what came out of that is besides God revealing that to me, ultimately what happened was is my passion for what I was doing was 100% gone. And I tried to fake it about five weeks after that. I'm sitting in and I'm recovering and I'm and I'm I'm doing okay, but I'm still not working full time. And I'm sitting on a couch at home and I plug in a in, in a DVD and was watching a little presentation, an investment presentation. And this investment presentation was of a group who was going in and buying affordable housing, putting capital, fixing them up, and then putting new management teams into these facilities who were loving on their residents. And there's two vignettes, two little 20-second vignettes, 30-second vignettes from two of the residents talking about what it was like living at these properties prior and post this group coming in. And one of them said, They've given me my dignity back. And another one said, I'm so excited now to have people come to my house. I knew what they meant, but he meant, but it was an apartment. And that's when the light bulb went on for me when I'm like, wait a second. When you combine capital with a heart, the ability to change people's lives and to have real meaning not that you can't have meaningful impact otherwise, but to have meaningful impact, you can do that through purposeful use of your capital. And so that's where the light bulbs went on for me. That became the seed. And, and there was plenty of seeds planted along there, but that became the catalyst that finally said, all right, I'm going to go do impact investing. The last thing I'll say there is ultimately that experience. So my wife and I did make an investment into, into that uh, opportunity. And what it did for us was it actually unlocked investing in a new light. When you invest with your hands open to see how your capital is benefiting others, as well as yourself with a return, my wife and I started to experience what I would call joy and freedom in the investing world. And so that was a catalyst. And I will just say, I look at impact investing not only as a way for capital to do good, but the other side that people don't talk about, and this is where I would encourage you all, there are investors out there who want to do this, and it is a joy and privilege for them to do this. Now, they may be at different points along the journey, but you as an entrepreneur are really giving people the opportunity to engage their capital in a meaningful way. And you shouldn't be ashamed and you should be bold about it because it changes people's lives. Thank you for sharing that, Jeff. I know you're going to share a lot with us today, but that is powerful. And it's so important for people to hear. One of the things um, that you, you mentioned that you and your wife made this decision, the spouse or a significant other in someone's business, when they're a social entrepreneur, even if they're not married, if they're thinking about getting married, being aligned is so important. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about like when it came to this? And this is also kind of from the mindset of the investor as well. 
was your wife on board with it right away? Or was it something that like God touched her heart to? Or was it she a little bit more reserved? So first of all, what I'd say is, I don't know if this is the way it is in most, but it's funny. And I think think in my head about a lot of marriages, my wife was probably, she's probably would be faster to do this than I would have even done it, mm-hmm. if just to be yeah. full tra- transparent. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, studies will show that, that about 85% thereabouts of women and millennials, if given the opportunity, would align their investment with their values. And so my wife fits into that. So I did engage her in this process because because it was important. And, and in, in my case, not only is it because the investment that I wanted to engage, but then I also recognize that there's something bigger here. And so, but one of the keys to it is, was bringing my wife into it. But then also as, as the investment has happened or occurred, she had the opportunity once or twice to actually come here like an update presentation. Now, remember, I'm in the investing world and we've invested in many things over our life. She never once went to an investor meeting. That just Mm -hmm. wasn't, that wasn't her passion. Now she knows what we do, but she came to one or two of those meetings and to see her get an update not only how it's doing financially, which she cares, but that wasn't the main reason, but to go see how her capital or our capital is making a difference. Mm-hmm. Oh man, she's on board. And and so much on board that then as we went to create common good, which was a process in and of itself, we sat down as a couple. And, I, and again, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but we sat down as a couple and said over a period of time, how much of our own capital do we want to invest into our startup common good? And we actually put a very big stretch number out there for us that we'd be willing to spend. Interesting enough, um, we're about $300,000 away from hitting that max. And so it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next several years. So I don't know if that answered your question, but she definitely was engaged but I think you also got to make it intentional. And for me, I wasn't going to move forward, especially with common good without having her on board because the sacrifice that she's had to make. And I will say, so we're seven, six and a half, seven years in a common good. She is involved in our board meetings. Mm-hmm. He knows what's going on. And um, I want her. In fact, she's actively praying. I mean, I got a text. I'm traveling, but I got a text yesterday from her and she was she's like I'm claiming this scripture and she's been praying for it so she is she is all in with me especially in as an as an entrepreneur I don't know how your spouse can't be because mm-hmm. it's just as much a sacrifice on them as it is as it is me mm-hmm, absolutely and they're the ones that are picking up the slack when you're out changing the world they're the ones that are keeping things stable at home and and um or even if it's a woman and there's the you know the woman is a social entrepreneur and the husband is or the significant other needs to be prepared that when this thing becomes a marriage that there are going to be a lot of sacrifices to make for the the cause yeah and what's interesting is we're talking about this so if you go if i go back to the first 40 years of my life i was a workaholic mm-hmm. and so and my wife would have said that she enabled that, um, not not that it's her, her fault at all, but she enabled that. And so what's interesting is, is you go, how do you not fall into that same scenario mm-hmm. today? And I felt that very early on. I still feel it. But part of the answer as we're, as I'm talking to you is 
having my wife fully engaged. Mm -hmm. And actually at times she's the one saying, no, you need to go do this. You need to go do this. And it's, it's like, well, if she's telling me then I'm probably not overstepping my bounds in, in, in my work, which has mm -hmm. been interesting. So thank you for your questioning. Because oh, I, you're welcome. That <laughs> well, and that's so important because a lot, especially it's no lie, we all are addicted to work in some way, or at least have been. And there are those chemicals of stress that run through your body and you literally get addicted to living off of adrenaline. And it's just like any addict, what you said, workaholism is acceptable. Mm. Eating is acceptable. The other things are not as socially acceptable. But once you have lived that way, it is so easy to fall back into the trap because you literally get addicted to the rush of even when it's for good, it's new investors. Oh my gosh, we had this much impact and it just kind of fuels that. And so I commend you for kind of having your wife as your check and balance to kind of push you, let you know you're not going too far, but then also to probably, she probably knows the signs better than you do of yeah. when starting to get a little too far. Well, and I would also say when, when you, this is a bit extreme, but when you get forced to your knees or, or kind of come to your end back when I was 40, mm -hmm. you come to realization that you, you have limits. I mean, I wasn't cognitively thinking I didn't have limits, but it was very clear. And so who I am today is through, through scars and damages as well as positive things. So it keeps you in check. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little about COVID good. So I, six, seven years in or I know that the business, all of our businesses are constantly evolving, but can you kind of talk about where Common Good Capital is as far as share about what you offer so that social entrepreneurs can kind of understand and kind of start moving in that direction of being investment, investment ready? Yeah. So unfortunately, our core business is not investing directly in companies like like you all now that's that's not to say that we haven't it's not to say and I, in fact i do I'll, I'll share one thing on the it's the personal side but we're, we're it's a seed at common good we my wife and i are investing in businesses that are either run by or hire formerly incarcerated men and women and or are are trying to make a difference in that space so some of my comments will be directly related to that because then I'm acting, I mean, I'm investing, uh, you know, in those businesses. But the core of what Common Good does, we actually inv invest through fund structures, F-U-N-D, just make sure you can hear me, <laughs> fund structures. And typically what we're doing is we're out there analyzing and due diligencing all different type of impact funds. So whether it's real estate funds, whether it's private credit funds, whether it's private equity funds. So we're doing due diligence on the managers who, who manage those. And then we ultimately run them through our investment committee. And to the extent that they pass and to the extent that we think there's a interest from wealth advisors and their investors across the United States, then we will enter some type of relationship and help educate and help raise capital. So we are in the capital raising business. So, I mean, there's a plenty of, of advice or, or best practices that we could share in, in, in those lines. So, and we've probably worked with about 15 different funds. And I'll just, just to give you a sense, we've done anything from investing in 
climate smart forestry. So in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, and I won't go through the whole strategy, but it's investing in timberland that has some hair on it, and, and you're actually slowing down the, the um, harvesting of it and unlocking other value in addition to the timber value. And so you got that extreme to affordable housing through multifamily or apartments. We've also done manufacturing housing, mobile home communities too. We've done stuff outside the U.S. We're doing some energy deals in Africa. So mm-hmm. 600 million Africans, I mean, 600 million, that's almost twice the size of the United States, don't have access to power. And the downstream impact to that from education to healthcare to churches to businesses, how do you run a dairy if your power's going out? So that's a smattering of what we have done. And actually, we're at an interesting spot. So we're six to seven years into this. This industry is absolutely growing. Their interest is greater every day. Now, there are also some headwinds out there as well. And so as an entrepreneur myself, I'm at actually a very interesting spot where I need to figure out and potentially pivot and go, how do I adapt to this market in a more meaningful way to get us to the next level as well? So I'm talking to you from somebody who's in the investing world, but I'm talking to you as an entrepreneur myself. Yeah. I think that's a common thing. Obviously, as far as, you know, sometimes we start broad and we narrow down, especially Mm. when you're an early adopter, you kind of have to put a lot out there just to see what's going to stick. I hate to say throw it against the wall, but you do have to try different things to find out what's going to work. And then, and it's so interesting how buzzwords, I don't even know how they get into the mainstream, but certain buzzwords shift investors or people's thinking. And then you kind of got to be ready. <laughs> so, so you you bring this up, which so the word ESG. Are you familiar with that? Yes. So yes. that's a buzzword that was really popular, and now it's hitting some major headwind. And actually, when I said there's some headwinds, that's one of the headwinds. What we focus on is not ESG. We focus on impact, which just for clarity, if people want to understand the difference. ESG, environmental, social, and governance, is generally around practices and policies. Impact is is about the end result. So it's coming up with not only financial goals of what you're trying to do, but it's also the impact that you're trying to have. And so what's important for us as an impact investor is that a company, a fund, has stated objectives that they're trying to influence and change in addition to financial. They're measuring those things and they're actually reporting on them. So if I'm in your shoes as an entrepreneur, one of the things that I would tell you is if you come to me and I want to understand what you're doing from a social entrepreneur standpoint, like I, I want to know what are your metrics that you're trying to, to change and drive in addition to your finan- to financial metrics, how are you measuring them and how are you going to report out on them? Really, really important to gaining investors' confidence that what you're doing is different. Mm-hmm. So in addition to all the basics that you, you need to have in place, solid financials, solid marketing, a proven product, you need to, things that you're looking for are what are the metrics that you're using, how are you measuring them, and how are you reporting them? Yep. Yeah, and then and then embedded it. So that that's the highest level. And if you start there, you're in a great spot. I'm also then we're going to come in and say, 
So you you have those metrics, then how is that actually infused in your day-to-day business? Now, mm. the hope is by have stating goals, by have measuring, it it is infused in the business. But I want to know that it's not just words on a piece of paper that you're it's that you're living it out and it's at your core at your core and you usually can get a sense of that pretty quickly mm-hmm. as an investor talking to uh, a company mm-hmm. and you get that from usually the the leader or is that something that you kind of have to dig around and talk to a few other people in the organization to find out if it's more than lip service well i'll say this if we don't sense it in the leader mm-hmm we're going to assume we're going to assume but we'll verify then it's not going to be successful going down usually you can get it from either the leader or the management team and then and then in the words they say how they say it i mean you know when somebody is passionate and when somebody is is living it out so you just got to ask i mean depending on what's being talked about you ask a few clarifying questions and you'll you'll quickly find if they've really thought about it mm-hmm. now one thing i will say is Having the heart to want to think this way and mindset to think this way, even if it's not fully fleshed out, there's real validity to that too. So we get great pleasure out of individuals who or funds that say, look, I want to be more intentional around this. I maybe don't have it all figured out. Will you help us do that? And so that also can be very rewarding. So you don't need to lie about it if you don't have it all figured out. That's Mm -hmm. okay. For people like us to be able to come in and, and to say, hey, have you thought about doing this, doing that? Um, there's real value uh, to that as well. So don't be discouraged if you don't have everything perfectly figured out because you're never. And oh, by the way, you're going to measure stuff and you're going to figure out that you maybe maybe you're measuring the wrong thing. And so you just got to be willing to adapt and change even in that area. This episode is brought to you by Avant-Garde Entrepreneur Foundations, where you can go from contemplation to clarity in just six weeks. How incredible does that sound? By learning to tap into the superpower of your spirit, you'll feel refreshed in your mind, certain of your mission, and inspired in your business. Go to trishabaileyphd.com forward slash A-G-E-F dash waitlist for more details. You can also find the link here in the show notes. Can you give us an example of some of the metrics that you might look at or that funds might look at some of it so we can get used to some of the terminology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first of all, there is a organization called GIN, Global Impact Investor Network, G-I-I-N dot org, I think. And they have a metrics called IRIS. I think it's I-R-I-S, I believe. And those are some standards to the industry, not uniformly agreed upon, but generally agreed upon for different metrics based on whatever industry that you're in. So I use that as a reference point, but I'll just give you an example. So in affordable housing, one of the things that we would look at is what is the income level of the resident that you are are trying to serve? By the way, there's no exact answer of what it should be, but but understanding like what the income level is for that individual, understanding that in the case of affordable housing, that the pricing is set for that individual where it's they're not deemed cost burden. Mm-hmm. Cost burden is a what percentage of their income is used to pay for housing. Mm-hmm. And so generally, if if you're above a certain percentage, then you're, you're cost burden. 
We would also look at, um, in the case of affordable housing, what services do you provide to your residents? And so, and oftentimes they do that, or we do that through nonprofit groups. So, you know, we all, you know, we have, I'm making this up, five wraparound services you know, that we provide to our communities. Um, English as a second language, uh, food pantry, you know, the list goes on and on. So those would be some examples in the affordable. Another, another big one in affordable is how many units, how many apartments have you either restored back to functioning units or how many have you developed and created? So mm-hmm. that's some of the, what I mean by metrics. In the case of, we're also doing this, this energy in, in Africa, you, there you'd look at, you know, at what kind of watts are you able to put out, at what cost, how is it helping in carbon reduction and some of those things as well. So does that, that give so, you a sense yes. of what I'm talking about? Yes, that helps a lot. And I, I can see that some of them, it's kind of nice. Some of them are relatively easy. Some of them are more challenging, but yeah. it's nice that there's there's kind of a mix. Some of them are more qualitative and some of them are, how many units have you fixed? How many yeah. watts are you putting out? That's kind of yeah. nice. Yeah. Now, I would, I would say in an ideal world, so let's say, let's say like how many units you fix. You know, in an ideal world, what you'd actually love to say is, hey, over the next year, our goal is to restore whatever a hundred of these units back into the market yeah and so there there's there's differing var- variety of of um how much you're moving the needle some of it mm-hmm. is like man you're really making a big difference so, so and there is no prescription in this that's mm-hmm. why coming up with standards is hard but what you'll find out is if you at least have what you're shooting for then it gives investors a sense of oh i get where you're going now What's interesting is like affordable housing, you have some individuals who will say, I only want to be investing in the lowest income individuals. Mm-hmm. And, and they'll actually make the statement, well, because they need it more. And I, I'm not here to get an argument about that, but you could also make an argument for those who make a little bit more. If they're just as cost burden as the lower income, they need just as much help as well. And so your own value and your own passions as an investor often come into this. And you really have to be an open mind that one is maybe not better than the other. It's just, mm-hmm. hey, this is what I'm called to. I'm, I'm called to invest in businesses that are run by and hire formerly incarcerated. I don't expect everybody to do that. And I may look at it differently than my brother or sister who invest in this. So, mm-hmm. which is why this it's this is an interesting business impact investing because it's so personal which makes it hard to scale but if you find the right investors in an affinity group you're probably going to be in a very good spot yeah yes for sure so for this interview this was a big topic i get lots of questions so i put it out to our avant-garde entrepreneur community and so i have some questions for you directly from the listeners so David from Able State in Uganda, this is a company that they take young people who, even if they don't have any education, like kind of like on the STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, and they give them education in coding in all types of IT skills. And so mm-hmm. they give them education, training, and then they connect them with people who need the services. 
So he's wondering, I'm just sharing that to give you kind of some color sure. around where he's at. Yep. His question is, at what stage or level of the social enterprise is it ideal for founders to approach investors? <laughs> and I know that kind of sounds a little bit vague, but I wanted to to just ask you directly from, you know, from David's words. Yeah. So let me answer it two ways, I think. The first is I would say, there are investors who will invest with you at all different stages on your journey. So it's probably my first thing to say is based on where you are at, whatever that means, do you know potential investors who invest at that stage of the business? That's the first thing because investors generally are very specific on where they want to invest along that spectrum. And so the good news is there's there, you'll find them throughout. Mm -hmm. The practical question is, is you probably should get your business to a spot of where it's ready for investors as soon as you can, partly because you need capital. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent you have your own capital, great. But, But I think you should always be preparing your business in such a way that you could present it, um, you know, to, to an investor. And so what do I mean by that? And I'm, I'm assuming I'm saying the obvious, but it's, you know, it's having a vision, a mission. It's having at least some type of financial model. It's, um, it's having a business plan. So I'm actually very good friends with the, he's the founder. And I, I don't know, he doesn't call himself the CEO, but the CEO of a group called Nehemiah Project. Nehemiah Projects trains entrepreneurs all around the world, um, and they also have some access to capital as well. So I would, you know, and I'm happy to, if there's ways to get to me, or but look up Nehemiah Project. They're actually out of Vancouver, Washington, and they would be a great resource. They have some capital that generally is looking for very early on, early investors is what they're looking for. Okay. So anyway, that would be my answer. Anything else you want to pontificate on? Is, did you interview him, the Nehemiah Patrice. Project? Yes, Patrice, Patrice. is okay. on our podcast. So, yes. so I'm going to link that in the show notes because okay. I did. I remember that. Yes. yes. Okay. I'll link to Patrice in the show notes. So that way you'll have even more contact yep. information. Okay. Yeah. And, and for this question specifically, I mean, he's from Cameroon mm-hmm. and he has coaches and he goes to Africa all the time. So it is a global organization. They'd be a great one to, to at least, okay. you know, research. Get in, especially early on. Okay. And then I also know a number of funds that invest directly in, in businesses. Now, the ones I think that I know are not startups, but early growth capital. And so, and I'm trying to I, I can't think of one of the names, but but to the extent you, and however you get people connected to me, I'm happy to give them some yeah. some connections because it, it like in Africa, I do know several in Africa. Okay, a lot of our listeners are from Africa, so we'll have Jeff's LinkedIn in the show notes. All of all of them, everybody's on LinkedIn, <laughs> all the listeners, so okay. you can connect with Jeff. But uh, tell the listeners, Jeff is a very busy man. Do not waste well, time. Well, and what I would do is if you try to reach out, but just, just reference this podcast, then that okay. will trigger it. I will say, when we start talking Africa, my younger brother who who started Common Good with me, he no longer is with me. We have a great relationship. There was no, there was no fallout, but he actually lives in Rwanda today. Okay. 
And he is the one who's leading the efforts on a fund on the, on the energy side. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So David has one more question. And again, I, I don't want to get us into any regulatory hot water or yeah. anything because I know enough, but this is a question that people have. So I'm going to ask it. What is the investor's monetary expectation in investing in a social enterprise? And what is the expected minimum ROI period? That is an extreme, it's a very important question. In fact, it's a very important question to answer. It's a very broad question. Mm -hmm. So let me just answer it this way. Again, you need to identify the investor's mindset motive before you talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably going to preach in the choir that everybody knows. But look, when you think about impact investing, on one hand, you have the investor who says, I want to generate market rate returns plus have this impact. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the spectrum, and this is where you're getting close to maybe not an investment, is somebody who says, look, I'm willing to part whatever. I'm willing to grant $100,000, whatever the number is, and get no return. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the spectrum. So you really got to figure out where does your business model fit in that spectrum and then find the, rep, the, the, the corresponding investors who are looking for those types of investments. So we talk to investors all the time and they'll be like, ah, well, that's, we're looking for more concessionary is the word that we use, meaning it's not market rate. We want it more impact and less about financial. And we have others that say, well, that doesn't have enough financial return. So I can't give you an answer the way you're looking at it, other than to say, you got to figure out what your business model can support and then let's face it, there probably are more investors at different points along that line than others. And so you got to marry that up. Uh, and I know it's a very broad answer, but hopefully it gives a little bit of context. Oh, it's that's super helpful. Just like social enterprises have maybe 10 stakeholders, groups that they're responsible for from depending on where they fall from the profit to nonprofit yeah. spectrum. It's the same. You may have 10 or more different investor categories because it really is dependent on their heart, how much yep. they're geared towards impact and how much they're geared toward returns. And my guess is probably as people get older or maybe they're certain things in their life change, they might be even more inclined for their values may shift. They may say, you know what? We're fine. The returns are a bonus. Let's focus on impact. So people, sounds like people change over time as well. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, let me give just a couple stats that hopefully encourage people. And this is US dollars, but, and, and don't hold me to exact numbers, but because I've seen different studies, but somewhere between 60 to $80 trillion is anticipated to transition to uh, transition to the next generation. And so whether that's to women, whether it's then to millennials, uh, there's a huge amount of capital that's going to transition in the next 25 years. One of the trends that's happening, at least in the United States, and I think I could probably generalize outside the U.S., is this idea of philanthropy or charity and investing is starting to come together. And so this discussion of impact investing fits in the middle of that. And so more and more women, millennials, and lest you think men are, are awful, 
believe it or not, still 60%, 65% of men, if given the opportunity to align their, their investments with their values, would. So this whole space is ever-changing and growing. And to your point, you know, an investor... Ten, I mean, if you would have talked to me about this 20 years ago, it probably wouldn't have resonated with me and just mm-hmm. life events where I'm at. And so you'll you'll see that with investors as well. And and actually, you'll see people change, which is and change and grow, which is kind of fun. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, there's a huge opportunity going forward because the world recognizes that capital has power. Mm-hmm. And when you combine that capital with people and ideas that are are worthy, then mm-hmm. then you can make a huge difference. Yeah, amazing. When we look at the quality, so not everybody makes it in social enterprise, just like not everybody makes it in business. So I don't want to get negative, but I do want to get be real. What sure. are businesses tough? You have known lots of business leaders in your life. So in addition to your personal experience, you've got friends and you've seen people from all over the world. If you could identify one place where leaders, business leaders get tripped up, could you give us a sense of what that might be and how they could avoid it? What comes to mind is a very broad statement, and I'm actually pointing a mirror at myself here. Look, I think one of the biggest mistakes that leaders of companies make is they try to do it on their own and they don't get enough people around them, helping them, coaching them, guiding them. And then especially the early stage, and look, I'm living this myself, is you have to wear so many hats, Mm -hmm. you know, so many different hats. And so you need people around you who can guide you. I mean, yeah, you need you need support from an emotional standpoint and you need people who can help guide you anyways. But I what I feel like on the if I were to give a in addition to that, a lot of the processes and and procedures of the business like are just not really well defined and really mm-hmm. and so what happens a lot of times these people come to investors and the quality of their plan is just is it doesn't mean it's not a good idea and it doesn't mean they don't have some some real merit but it's really hard to invest in some of these businesses when when the the plan is not put together well mm-hmm. and they haven't thought through it and again you don't have to have all the answers because it's probably going to change but if you don't have a sense of where you're going it becomes very hard to say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to invest in that. Because really, you know, even in the businesses that I've invested in, yeah, I'm investing in that business plan, but I'm really investing in that entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's a heavy weight to carry. I mean, I know I live it as an entrepreneur myself. So part of that is, is do you have people around you yeah. to help you and to speak into you? And, and, and look, there's generally people who, you know, whether it's from emotional support or somebody who knows finances and say, can you sit down for a little bit? Well, how should I be thinking about it? How should I be reporting this stuff? Because there's a lot to business. There's a lot in these businesses. And so the goodness of heart, like you, I love that, but that doesn't make it work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people, that's a hard message to hear. Yeah, it is. And I would say at times, and this is a lesson I have to learn as well. Like your idea and your eagerness, yeah, it's worthy and it needs to be pursued, but it doesn't mean you start it today. Mm-hmm. 
it may take you a while before you start it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you may need to get some things in place. You may need to, I mean, you may need to actually try to have a full-time job, but on the side, get some pieces in place before you make that, that jump or whatnot. So uh, yeah, th- those are just some of my initial thoughts based on your question. That is so helpful. And I think what is most interesting is that there are so many patriarchal societies around the world and so many people that have the gumption to do something like this, to start an impact investing business. They have this inner chutzpah, this inner drive. They feel like they're bulletproof. Maybe their society doesn't allow them to show weakness or to show vulnerability or to ask for help. But yet these are all the things that we really need to be successful impact business owners. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, on one hand, it's common sense. On the other hand, it's, it's hard to do because yeah. you, you think you got to be a, a leader has got to be the one charging and, you know, you know, you know, put it on my back. I can do it. And, and maybe there's a season to do that, but if mm-hmm. you do that long-term, you're not going to last. Yeah. One of the other things that we get a a lot of leaders give guidance on is the importance of recharging and Mm -hmm. taking time away. I talk a lot about this, about taking time to either completely away from your business to work on instead of in it or taking a break to get recharged. You travel a lot, Jeff. You don't let grass grow under your feet. How do you take care of yourself? What do you do to recharge? Yeah. And this is a really important issue because like what I told you when I was 40, I hit all the ends emotionally, mm-hmm. spiritually, physically. Um, and in fact, after my back surgery, I ended up in an emergency room m- more because of I'd had so many uh, drugs that they were they had in me. But I think it was also coupled with that was just the pure exhaustion. So look, the first thing, and this was, and this, this took me 40 years to realize it is the first thing is, is that you need to rest is a good thing. I mean, I, and I'm not special. I mean, there's no, there's nothing good to say, but I mean, the hours that I'd work in a week was just insane. And, and I just thought that's what you had to do. What I will tell you when I stepped away out of that, that, um, pressure cooker, what I actually realized was when I was rested, and intuitively we know it, when I was rested, I actually worked better and was more efficient than just just grinding it. Mm-hmm. So for me, I used to be in, well, I used to, and again, this was in my state of performance. I used to run marathons and all that stuff. And so I, I chuckle, he's like, I'm going to say this out loud. So you know what I do now? I walk, I regularly walk several hours, well, not several hours, um, you know, an hour at a time, actually walk with a, a gentleman who's almost 80 years old, mm. once a week, roughly. So not only am I getting some exercise, but I'm just getting poured into and as in a relationship. And here's what's interesting. My wife were on her, she would tell you in my driven, driven days, we would take a walk and I'd be like, is this even doing anything? And she's like, yeah, we're together. We're having fun. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not sweating. And then she, her, her version is by the end, we'd be running. But look, just as simple as I try to walk and, and, and engage with people in that, which is crazy when I say it. I also do, I, I do some light weights because my personality is I didn't tend to do everything to the extreme. Mm-hmm. So I literally am list, lifting weights 15, 20 minutes. That, that's mm-hmm. it. 
Uh, I have a quiet time regularly every day. I also try to eat healthy. I've actually tried to eliminate uh, more and more sugar. The, the, the area that I don't do as well, and it, it actually goes to the advice I, I gave, um, because of my travel schedule, uh, friendship when I'm home and, and whatnot is is probably, and it's not, it's, I don't think it's because I don't want it. It's everybody else's, we're all so busy, mm-hmm. but that's probably the one area that I could, I could do a better job of. I also, mm-hmm. there's a fair amount of just talking with my wife and learning to be more vulnerable about how I'm feeling, how I'm going, the challenges that I'm doing. And then I also think, and these are all just random ideas. I also think for me, oh, I love the outdoors, but then I also think service, serving others and serving others. It doesn't mean doing, I mean, sure, it could be a big old project, but it could be serving on a board. Like I, I'm, that's why I'm here in Chicago. I'm on a board and yeah, it's actually time away, but we're empty nesters and my wife has blessed all this. And so it does allow me some time to get out of the business and mm-hmm. think about some other things and and serve others. So those are just some of the things I do. Although I would tell you, I'm not so sure I'm the ideal one to look to for examples. Look to the first half of my life when I probably didn't do it right. And then I'm incrementally doing some things right now. And that's what growth is all about. You, you, sometimes you have to have the contrast. <laughs> you yep. got to have the contrast of what you don't want or what doesn't suit, serve you anymore to, to understand what does. Yeah. Unfortunately, we, we usually have to experience the negative side before we actually make yeah. a change. Don't we all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jeff, common good lives up to its name in you and your wife and your team. It's amazing. Thank you so much for what you're doing in the world. And thank you so much for your time and your heart and for pouring into our listeners, because these are things that are on their minds. And when we can arm them with information and you sharing so authentically, it is a huge impact on their lives and on the lives of their beneficiaries. Well, I am in the battle with everyone. So I feel the pain. I feel the excitement when things go well. And uh, so I'll be praying for all you. And and what I would say is it's an exciting time that more and more recognizing that capital and a heart make a difference. And mm-hmm. so I just would encourage you all to keep to keep fighting. You real change can happen through this. And in closing for me is, remember I said early on, I said, on one hand, I, I you know, my career was radically changed. Well, on one hand, I'm doing the same thing that I did for the previous 20 years, but I'm doing it with a different why and a different motive. Mm-hmm. And that has changed everything. And it's just, it's, but it's just that little tweak in my case of, how do we use capital for good? How do we help it to unlock people's joy and freedom and in investing? Otherwise, it's the same thing I did the previous 20 years. Yeah. And yet yeah. somehow I've got the energy to do it now. It's it's yeah. amazing how that works. It's that intention and yep. having the intention and the intentionality. It's amazing. And yes, pouring your heart into it does make all the difference. Especially when you got a brain to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to what you're doing. I mean, obviously you you've taken the, in my terms, the second half of your career and devoting it to what you're doing here today. And um, I know personally, it's harder than people think to 
step off and your identity is probably wrapped up a little bit more in your career before. So I commend you and what you're doing as well. And um, you're in the journey with us. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Thanks so much, Jeff. And thanks to all the listeners who sent in the great questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Avant-Garde Entrepreneur. I hope you feel encouraged, equipped, empowered, and unstoppable. If you enjoyed what you heard, share it with a friend. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review it here on your podcast player. Questions, comments, or feedback? Connect with me directly at trishabaileyphd.com or on social at trishabaileyphd. Now, you go and get back to making the world a better place. I'll see you back here soon.